Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, Regulars. a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, Ian. Hey. Welcome back to another casebook. So we're just about two months into our exploration of the Sherlock Holmes canon now. Mm -hmm. And this is the third case file that we're spending looking at Arthur Conan Doyle short stories. Right. How are we feeling about Sherlock Holmes and his many marvelous cases? You know, they do vary. In quality and or substance. Mm-hmm. Some of them are these big sweeping cases. And then some of them are the Red-Headed League. Just dumb, silly little cases that happen. And you're like, oh, this is silly. And which do you prefer? I kind of like the silly ones. Yeah. Because they're just like one-offs. And they, they don't have any like hindrance to any big plots. I like when Sherlock Holmes is a little goofy. I like when the cases are a little silly. Yeah. That feels right for me. And it'll be interesting to see, as we go forward, which adaptations manage to keep a hold of that idea and which just throw it out the window. They also seem the most fun to adapt, I feel. You know, because we we enjoyed Redhead League Granada because it was just a lot of fun. And you could tell, like, the actors were having a lot of fun with it. It's funny you create this dichotomy of like big sleeping stories and goofy smaller cases, because I bet we have one of both today. I think so, yeah. My case has some similarities to Redheaded League, and the one you read... Is the big sweeping one. Is the big sweeping one. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't call mine big sweeping, but it's kind of like a sequel to the final problem, in a way. We figured it was high time, after killing Sherlock off in our second episode, <laughs> to bring the man back. And since it's pretty much after spooky season, what better way to yes to celebrate than yes. <laughs> resurrect November, a dead detective? November 1st, a ghost returns. Right. <laughs> so why don't we dive right in? You read The Adventure of the Empty House? Yes. So a little bit of history with this one. First published in the U.S., in Collier's in September of 1903. And then about a month later in October of 1903, it premiered in The Strand. And then later on, it was included in the short story collection, The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Spoiler, he returns. Mm -hmm. So we start The Empty House with Watson kind of just talking about how much he misses his boyfriend. Who's been dead, because this is the first story set chronologically after the events of The Final Problem, where Sherlock went over the waterfall. Yes, with yeah. Moriarty. Yes. And so Watson is like, damn, I miss my boyfriend. And I keep noticing, like, all these mysteries happen. And, you know, I try to go to them and, like, try to solve them to the best of my Holmesian way, but it's just not the same, and I'm not really good at it. He's detectiving. Yeah, a little bit. He's doing a little detective work, but he's like, I can't do as well as Holmes, so, like, why bother? That's so interesting. What what else do we learn about his burgeoning detective business? Are the police involving him, or is he mostly getting private clients? He's honestly just mostly doing it himself by finding out about these murders in, like, newspapers. He's just sort of a hobbyist. Yeah. Wow. He's not even making money doing it. No, not making any money. He's just, like... I kind of I kind of miss the days. By the way, it's been three years. Oh wow! Since wow, like Sherlock has been dead for three years. So he's mourned. 
Yeah. Yeah. And he's still kind of worrying. He's just like, damn, where's my boyfriend when you need him? Is he married at this point in the story? I'm not sure. I, there's no mention of his wife we in should, the story. We should figure out a timeline for everything. We're gonna we're gonna get the red string. <laughs> yeah, and figure out <laughs> chart out when they were published versus when they're set. Just put it all in order. But yeah, so he's mourning mourning his boyfriend, and there has been a killing of the Honorable Ro- Ronald Adair, who is known. He is the I believe the grandson or the nephew of the governor of one of the Australian colonies. So Ronald Adair has died. He has been murdered in a locked room. In London. Classic. He, he was found shot in the head. Mm-hmm. There's no traces of anybody in the room. And he's on the second story. And there's no traces of anybody being below in the garden or trying to, like, get up into the room. There's no pipe. There's, like, nothing. Mm-hmm. So his death is a, a mystery. And, and, and there's no weapon. Yeah, no weapon is there either. Right. And the night before, he was playing cards with a few friends. Those friends are... Mr. Murray, Sir John Hardy, and Colonel Moran. So keep those names in your mind. One of those sounds familiar to me. (laughs) So Watson is intrigued by this murder because of just how mysterious it is. And he kind of goes out and kind of goes towards the house where it happened. But he's not, like, going in or anything. He's just intrigued and wants to go near it. He hears somebody else doing, like, armchair detectiving, like, in the park. The guy is being so absurd with his, like, theories that he's like, meh. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's no Holmes. Interesting. He just walks past the guy spouting, like, spouting off opinions to nobody? Yeah, conspiracy theories, basically. Ah, interesting. That's (laughs) wild that, like, it's a true crime enthusiast. I guess Watson's the same, but I love that this guy is just, like, blabbing about, like, a recent tragic murder. (laughs) Yeah. And is like, I've got opinions about this. I know what happened. He's like, no, you don't. And also, like, someone died. Like, there's a family sad, you know? Like, (laughs) like, both Watson and the man in the park, I think, are the same to me right now. Where it's like, (laughs) maybe don't deal with it. I think Watson's a little different. He's not, like, expounding his opinions like this guy. Sure, but he's, he's poking his nose in where he wasn't asked to. I think what Watson's doing is a little bit different. But Watson actually comes across this elderly man this elderly deformed book collector runs into him this book collector drops his books and kind of is angry that watson knocked over his books watson is of course apologetic because watson is a gentleman he's a nice guy he's a nice guy and he's like hey sorry about the books and the guy's like is a dog well no he's not a dog (laughs) but you know he's kind of he's kind of snarly okay sure watson goes back to his house and the elderly man shows up to his house and is like, hey, sorry I was mean to you about the books. You know, I just really love these books and all of that. And they intrigue me. And hey, do you have any of these books on your cabinet? I'll happily, like, give them to you. Watson turns around to look at his cabinet. And when he turns back around, guess who's standing in front of him? It's Sherlock. Mycroft Holmes. <laughs> no, it's Sherlock. What? I thought he was dead. Nope. Sherlock was the elderly man in disguise this whole time. Wow. Who and, could have seen this coming? <laughs> and Watson is so surprised and so struck by this that he, for the first and last time, as he says, he faints. I love that because it's such a, like, because this is a Victorian novel and it's, like, such a feminine trait <laughs> to faint dead away. That's shocking news. <laughs> and so... 
Holmes is like, hey, sorry about that. Sorry I startled you. Are you okay? Like, sorry I made you faint. And Watson's like, what the fuck, man? Where have you been? What's going on? Why are you here? I thought you were dead. Wait, so hold on. Let's go back for a second. Yeah. Is Watson still living at 221B? No, he's back at, like, a house of some sort. Oh, okay. Don't know if it's his house. Don't know if it's his wife's house. But he is at... His own quarters in, in the three years. He did not seek out another roommate. No. Huh. Maybe because, like, being at 221B kind of reminds him too much of Holmes. He, he's mourning. He was sad. Yeah. You do weird shit when you're sad. Like, disguise yourself as a bookseller. Or well, your... Holmes wasn't sad. Holmes wasn't sad? No. Of course Holmes was sad. Do you think he missed his Watson? Oh, he definitely missed his Watson. He says so himself. Okay. He's like, I missed you, buddy. I'm sorry I lied. But here's what really happened. And we (laughs) get flashback. Right. We do get a flashback moment of what happened at the falls. Yeah. So he's like, listen, I knew Moriarty was going to be there. I wrote the little note while you were away, (laughs) stuck it on a rock. And then Moriarty and I walked around I walked in front. Moriarty was behind me. I knew he was going to attack at some point. Moriarty did and charged at him. And then <laughs> Sherlock used some baritsu, as it's called, which is like some martial arts <laughs> tactics on Moriarty, which involves laying on the ground, getting up into like a fetal cat position and like scratching at his face. <laughs> Wait, hold on. I'm just trying to picture this. So, Holmes... Holmes was walking in front of Moriarty. Yes. He waited for Moriarty to attack. Uh-huh. And then after Moriarty attacked, he got on the ground and sprung up like a cat? Yeah, kind of like like on his back. Wouldn't it be too late if he was already being attacked well, to get on the ground? He heard Moriarty coming for him. It was like, hold on a second. Let me... <laughs> yeah. I'm a middle-aged man. This will take a minute. I mean, Sherlock is spry. He is. He's a spry little guy. He is. So there's a little, like ensuing fight and then Sherlock with all of his might yeets Moriarty over the over the cliff. Yeah. And Moriarty falls, hits a rock, bounces off a rock and into the water. Like Javert in the Les Mis movie. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Mm. You you hear the watermelon splat. Oh god. And Sherlock is like, okay, so I just wrote this note to Watson. I can't take off my shoes and let there be like three footprints in the ground. Otherwise they'll think there's deception or like something's going on. So, and there's really no other way for me to get like out of this area except climbing by the falls. (laughs) So. Wait, wait. So this is all predicated on it mattering what it looks like at the scene. Yeah. So the part of the setup of final problem is that, Sherlock has dispatched Moriarty's gang already. Mm-hmm. And it's only Moriarty left and everyone else has been captured and in jail. So why would it matter how it looks? He, couldn't he just go up and be like, Watson, it was Moriarty, but it's okay, I dealt with him. Well, because we learn very quickly, not all the gang has been dispatched. Okay, Arthur. <laughs> so as Holmes is climbing... And he finds, like, a little, like, little nesting ground to be while Watson comes by and sees, like, oh, Holmes and Moriarty have fell. Yeah. And then everybody goes away. Holmes is like, okay, I'm gonna come out of my hidey hole. But a giant boulder gets thrown from the top of the falls. 
and like just grazes the little landing that Holmes is on. And Holmes looks and, up. And Watson doesn't notice this giant rock falling Watson's from already the sky? Gone. Okay. Watson's already gone. Like this is, we've done the end of the final problem. Uh-huh. Watson's already gone. Police are already gone. Like everybody's gone. Uh-huh. So Holmes is like, great, this is my chance to get out of here. Mm. Except the boulder falls. Right. Grazes, like, the little landing that Holmes is on. It's, a, like, a mossy landing. And Holmes looks up and sees a man, like, just daggers at him, like, giving him dagger eyes. He has seen everything that has happened. He knows that Holmes is alive. And he works with Moriarty. So he's trying to, you know kill him. <laughs> huh? So he throws another boulder. Okay, but also also to what end? Like uh, like I I guess we kind of talked about this in the in the study in Emerald episode about if this is Moran, about Moran like doing this revenge killing. It's it's a revenge killing and he's going to fight back. Right. Yeah. Is this Moran? You'll see. All right. All right. So Holmes is like, okay, Everybody's gone, so now I can get back on the path. I just have to avoid these giant rocks being hurled at me. How strong is this guy? And how many giant rocks are, like, loosely scattered at the top of this cliff? Well, you know, it's a waterfall. There's probably rocks everywhere. So Holmes kind of, you know, maneuvers and gets back on the path and escapes this guy. Right. But he knows that this guy is going to be in London. At some point. Why? How? It could be a German tourist. A Swiss tourist. Because they're in Switzerland. Swiss tourist, Because they're in Switzerland. Thank you. And, but Holmes knew, like, okay, this guy is working with Moriarty. He's obviously from London. I can't go back home yet. So let me spend three years just traveling around the world. (laughs) Doing what? Well, he poses as different, like, professors and different, like, archaeologists and important guys in order to kind of give Watson a clue that, hey, I'm still here, but I'm doing other things. But Watson doesn't understand that. Wait, wait, what's the clue? He poses as, like, different, like, professors or, like, different, like, inventors, like, discovering some, like, things in, like, different areas of the world, which is really funny. And he thinks that Watson will be like, Oh, there are some smart men out there. Sherlock Holmes is a smart man. Yes. He, he's the only one who could be this smart. Yep. That's the idea? Yeah, that's his idea. He couldn't have sent a, a letter? <laughs> no. I mean, like, like presumably the premise is that, like, Watson's post is being watched? Yeah. But, but, he, but he could have sent a coded letter. Yeah, but I think he just expects Watson to think that he is dead. Even though he's leaving clues that say he's alive? Yeah. So why are the clues there? Just, just cause. Just for fun? Just for fun. Yeah. I mean, and for Watson to be, like, later on when Holmes, like, realizes, like, hey, this is me. This strikes me as so odd because, again, the premise of the final problem is that Sherlock Holmes is like, my life is in danger. Watson? Vacation? So the fact that in this one, he's like, my life is in danger. Watson, I'm dead. <laughs> Watson, I'm dead, but I'm also going on more vacations <laughs> right. for three years. Right. He's he's not, like, working. He's just like, like, well, the Antarctic sounds nice. I mean, he's like, like I said, he's like doing, like, other little things. He's posing as, like, other professors, discovering some unique things. And, like, I believe, like, there's something in Peru that gets discovered, and it's by this professor, but it's 
turns out to be Holmes. All right, fine. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's Arthur getting himself out of a corner, but I don't buy it. And so that later on when Holmes was like, hey, you heard about that guy? That was actually me. <laughs> He's just showing off again. A little bit, but you know, it's Holmes. Uh, it's why we love him. Uh-huh. So Holmes is back because he figures that whoever threw those rocks is going is the killer of this guy. Why does he think that? Not sure. <laughs> he doesn't really explain it well, but uh-huh. he's like, I'm, they're connected, I'm sure. So Watson's like, okay. It's the same MO. A rock is basically <laughs> basically the gun of the Swiss Alps. <laughs> basically. So they decide to not investigate this other house that this murder happened. Instead, because they're, remember, they're at Watson's house right now. So they do go to Baker Street, but they don't go to 221. They go to a house across the street from 221 called the Camden House, which is like this kind of uh, abandoned building. Mm, okay. And they go in and they go to a window. And Watson is surprised to see that in the window is Sherlock's figure smoking on a pipe, you know, just by the window. In the window of Camden House or the window of, of 221 Baker Street? Of 221, uh-huh. Yeah. Blinds closed, everything's closed, and Watson's like, wait a minute, how is this, if you're here, how are you there? Mm-hmm. And Sherlock's like, that's a wax bust of me, buddy. Wait, okay, hold on. <laughs> Again, I must say, uh-huh. what? He? I thought he was pretending to be dead. Yeah. Why would there be, why would he need to make it look like he was at Baker Street if he's presumed dead and has <laughs> been for years? He's just declared that he's back? Yeah. With this wax bust? Yeah. Why? To what end? Well, here's the other funny thing about the wax bus. The wax bus appears to be moving, mm-hmm. and it's because Sherlock instructed Mrs. Hudson to turn the bus at certain points in the day to make it look like it's actually him. And the way she's doing it so that she's not seen is like she's crawling on the floor at the feet of the bus, just turning it. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, so, okay, so Sherlock came back from the dead and told Miss Hudson first... <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Wrote to Mrs. Hudson first. Mrs. Hudson was the first person to know that Sherlock wasn't actually dead. Oh, wow. All right. But, so they're in this house, and they're kind of waiting to see if this killer that killed Adair is going to come and try and kill Holmes. What's well, the relationship between Holmes and Adair? There's none. Okay. There's none. All right. <laughs> but... The Camden House door opens. Luckily, Holmes and Watson are well hidden, and a man does come in, and they come, and it comes by the window, and is about to shoot at the bus when Holmes and Watson attack. The guy kind of gets out of their hands and tries punching him, but luckily, Watson has his little, little pistol and hits him in the back of the head with it. Mm-hmm. And then Holmes blows a whistle, and here comes Lestrade. Incredible. Okay, so he also told Lestrade first that he was back. Yes. <laughs> Yes. All right. And I'm not sure he likes Watson all that much. <laughs> He's protecting Watson, I guess. Is he? No. But Lestrade comes in and is like, all right, let's get this guy. And this guy, this sniper, turns out to be Colonel Sebastian Moran, who is Adair's partner and, like, the, like the colonel to Adair. And just happened to be... Moriarty's partner as well. The guy who was at the top of the cliff. Partner? 
threat. No. Oh. It was all about money. All right. The reason he killed Adair was because Adair found out that Moran was cheating at their card game. And Adair was like, hey, you stop that now. Or I'm going to tell. And then you'll be thrown out of this highly established group of people that we're with. And Moran was like, no, no. Boom. And the reason that he knew about the connection, the reason that he knew that there was a connection between Moran and Moriarty is because the gun that Moran used was the same gun that Moriarty would use. The Um, air thing. The air thing. The silent gun. Right. Which is why nobody heard anything and why he was able to make a perfect aim. Because with the gun, you were able to do, like, the ultimate perfect aim from a distance. Okay. So, but there wasn't a bullet hole? Oh, no. He shot He shot at Holmes in the window. Oh, no, no. I mean, in the locked room mystery. Oh, no. Uh, I believe the window was open. And, yeah, that's kind of the end of the story. Moran is kind of taken in jail. He's surprised that Holmes is there and alive in front of him. Because he thought, I got the guy. And all he can say is, you fiend. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you fiend. And Holmes is like, okay, we're good. We got all of Moriarty's guys. I can come back fully now. The end. So many questions. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. I guess first, like, we're always talking about queer subtext and the emotional content. Is there is there more to the interaction between Holmes and Watson when they get back together? Is Holmes like, how fucking dare you? I mean, like, what's what's that... I think Watson is just shocked. For the rest of the story? Kind of. He's just like, I can't believe this is happening, but I'm also happy that my friend's back. Hmm. I'm happy that my guy's back. I'm happy that I get to go on these adventures again, because I've been missing these adventures, and I'm not going to question it, because it's Holmes, you know? He always finds a way. I'd be pissed off. I'd be so annoyed. (laughs) I'm sure if we see adaptations of this story, we'll see maybe a more pissed off Watson. Yeah. We will. (laughs) But in the book, Watson is like, yeah, that all makes sense. I'm glad you're back, friend. Let's go back on our adventures Uh and make out. So we don't don't get more, like, reconciliation time between the two of them. The story just kind of ends? No. I mean, we get, like, the whole, the the deductions and, like, how he figured out. Sure. That everything worked. But other than that, like, I I will say, like, the Watson fainting and the Holmes, like, being over him, being like, hey, are you okay? I'm sorry. I scared you. Like, that... That was very cute. That was very gay. But other than that, it's just kind of all, like, the rest of the case. case yeah. And, like, just bringing Holmes back into this world. Interesting. Also, why did he run into him as a bookseller and, like, grumble at him? Because Holmes was also intrigued by this case. So he was just in the area? And then he, he was like, he was Watson, in the area. I'm gonna bump into him. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm gonna bump into Watson. Well... No, he he was just kind of surprised that Watson was there, and he was like, "Ah, he's intrigued by the case too. Good for him. Let me let me reveal that I'm here." He's like, "I'm gonna bump it to Watson. I'm gonna squeeze his butt, and he can touch my books if you know what I mean." If you know what I mean, if you know what I mean. What do you think of this story? It's cute. I you know, it, it sounds like it's satisfying on the level of a Holmes and Watson case. I don't know that it sounds like it's satisfying on the level of like this being the big like, character connection moment? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely more about the case and more about how do we get Holmes back in than it is about the two of them as a pair. But the case sounds fun. I like a a 
I like. I think it's funny that the solution is, oh, the window is open. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Scotland Yard stumped by open window, <laughs> which, you know. And I, untrampled flowers at, at the bottom of the two-story window. They were stumped by that, too. So I read The Three Garadebs, and I wanted to read it because at least two of our guests recently brought it up as an example of Holmes and Watson showing textual affection for each other. Yeah. And I was like, that's kind of what this podcast is about. Let's get into that. Let's find out what that's about. And this story feels a little like the Redheaded League. It has <laughs> it has some similarities. I'm excited. I I loved Redheaded League. Looking yeah. back at it, it's probably one of my favorites because it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. So let's get into this one. So fast facts for the three Garadebs, briefly. Written first published in 1924 in Collier's again. Um, but set in 1902. I want to read you this opening line because I like this one a lot. It may have been a comedy or it may have been a tragedy. It cost one man his reason. It cost me a bloodletting. And it cost yet another man the penalties of the law. What's with all the Watson stories lately of him losing blood? I know. I mean, murder by decree and now this? Yeah, that's true. But I, I just think it was that, like, that's a solid opening. I'm like, I want to find out about that. What do you mean? <laughs> Tell me more. It starts with him describing what Holmes has been up to. And the two bits of information we get are that Holmes has just refused a knighthood and that he's recently spent several days in bed. <laughs> I mean, good for him. Yeah. On the days in bed. Why would you refuse a knighthood? Yeah, I wonder. That's a That's a fun little thing to do. So Arthur Conan Doyle had just received knighthood, so mm. it's interesting that he allowed his fictional counterpart to turn down the offer. And I, I sort of wonder, you know, I don't have really have the context to understand why someone would turn down a knighthood. Maybe he's like, oh, I wasn't meant to be a knight. That's what you think Sherlock Holmes sounds like? Yeah. Well, his cockney man Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so he, he comes in and he's like, have you ever heard the name Garadab? You may have the chance to make some money. And Watson's like, what do you mean? And he's like, can you find a Garadeb in the phone book? It's a last name. Because he has, he has someone's written to him, and he's holding these, these sheets of paper about this issue. And Watson like starts looking up the name in the phone book, and he's like, oh, here's one. Yeah, there's, there's one here, Mr. N. Garadeb. And he's like, oh, no, no, that's the one who, that's the one who wrote me. We, we need two more. Three Garadebs, you know, like hmm. the title of the story. And at that moment, Mrs. Hudson comes in with a note card on a tray for Mr. John Garadab. And uh, Watson's like, oh, hey, I found one. <laughs> and Holmes is like, oh, no, that's the other one. We need, we still need a third. <laughs> that's the other one that I'm aware of. So there are two De- Garadabs at the same time contacting Holmes. Yes, about the same matter. So Mr. John Garadab, the, re- the reason Mrs. Hudson has brought in his card is because he's downstairs. They let him up. And he's an American lawyer. And he's like, hey... I'm doing some business with N. Garadeb, and I don't much like that he reached out to you. What's all this about? Why did he bring you into this case? And Holmes, you know, does the Holmes thing where he recognizes the clothes and makes some deduction about how long he's been in England that the lawyer seems upset about. And he seems, like, angry that Holmes is involved in the case. Do people in America know who Holmes is at this point? Oh, I wonder about that. When the man comes up the stairs, he's not sure at first... Which one is Holmes between Holmes and Watson? Hmm. And then he, when he recognizes Holmes, he says, Ah, yes, your pictures are not unlike you, sir. So Holmes's picture has been published in the paper at some point. Hmm. But he's also been in England at some time, which Holmes recognizes by the cut of his clothing. Got it. Okay. And at this point, Holmes is back in 
his mystery solving mode, so he's probably being published all the time. I suppose. Yeah, this it, this is set in 1902, so that's... When did he die and come back? 1894. Oh, so yeah, so he's been back for a little while. Yeah. And interesting that this story was published tw- almost more than 20 years after your story. Yeah. Like, I, I really sometimes don't recognize how much of Arthur Conan Doyle's life was spent writing these stories, or over how long a period of his life. So... Holmes says, I'm familiar with the details of this case because I've received this letter from N. Garadeb, but Watson doesn't know them. Would you mind explaining? And he says, Mr. Garadeb says, need he know about Watson? And Holmes says, we usually work together. Ah, they're gay. (laughs) People who work together are not necessarily gay. They're gay. But I also like, this is structural in some ways because, like, him explaining the story to Watson is more interesting than... Sherlock explaining the story to Watson, and we, you know, we get more character details, that kind of thing. But I like that w- what he's saying is kind of true. Like, why does Watson need to know? Because they're gay. Because they're gay. And Sherlock has to involve Watson. It, you know, like, boyfriends tell each other things all the time. So, like, there's no secrets between them. Except when Holmes is pretending to be dead for three years. Right. So, the lawyer explains that he is from... Kansas. Everybody was obsessed with Kansas during this time of writing. You know, L. Frank Baum, Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. What was going on in Kansas at the time? And he says that while in Kansas, he became acquainted with a man named Alexander Hamilton Garadev. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton Garadev. <laughs> My name is Alexander Hamilton Garadev. <laughs> and that this Mr. Garadev was an eccentric millionaire, and he was amused about the resemblance between their names, and that upon his death, in his will, he left his fortune to three, that if any three adult men named Garadeb could be found, then they would jointly inherit the millions of dollars that he has. Will the real third Garadeb please stand up? (laughs) Oh, are they, like, having a hard time finding this Garadeb? And they're like, Holmes, find him. Yes, exactly. So the, the American lawyer... Was having trouble finding Garadebs in America. He came to England. He found this Mr. N. Garadeb in the phone book. And then he was like, hey, man, if we can find a third Garadeb, then, then we'll have $5 million each. Help me look. And then that guy reached out to Holmes for help. Fun. Yeah. Very goofy setup. So Holmes says, by the way, it is curious that you should have come from Topeka. I used to have a correspondent. He is dead now. Old Dr. Lysander Starr, who was mayor in 1890. Good old star, said our visitor. His name is still honored. So. This must be, like, during his three-year hiatus from. <laughs> he went to America. He went to America. And he met the mayor of Topeka. He went, he kind of went everywhere, so I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe. But as soon as the American lawyer has left, Holmes says, I was wondering, Watson, what on earth could be the object of this man t- in telling us such a rigmarole of lies? <laughs> so everything that they've just been told, told is completely false. Damn. There is no, there is no mayor star that Holmes knew. The man is lying about how long he's been in England. Nothing is quite fitting right. Mm. So they call the other Garadeb to go visit him. And this is where we get, like, an incredible Doylean character. <gasps> but before we get to that, they find the house. The house is described as being not a collection of residential flats, but rather the abode of bohemian bachelors. Mm. Which... which I probably isn't queer a queer coded phrase, but sounds really queer coded to me. 
Like, oh, is he, you know, a bohemian bachelor? <laughs> no, he doesn't take a wife. He's a bohemian bachelor. <laughs> but he writes, Mr. Nathan Garrett had proved to be a very tall, loose-jointed, round-backed person, gaunt and bald, some 60-odd years of age. He had a cadaverous face with the dull, dead skin of a man to whom exercise was unknown, large round spectacles and a small projecting goat's beard, combined with his stooping attitude to give him an expression of peering curiosity. The general effect, however, was amiable, though eccentric. Does he look like he probably had red hair? <laughs> it's just the same guy. It's just the same guy. And he has, like, he's converted, you know, a whole room of his living quarters into this, like, collection of curiosities. He's, like, very interested in collecting things. He has, like, skulls and vases and, like, this large collection of odd ephemera, Cabinet of Curiosities style, that, that is all over the room. And it's, it's, like, really varied. Well, I know one thing. If there's a Cabinet of Curiosities and various things, they're probably the bad guy. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Because we've seen two stories already. Mm-hmm. Devil's Foot and the Hound Baskervilles. Oh, just in the movie, though. Just in the movie. But yeah. we've seen so far, like, mm-hmm. if a man has various curiosities from around the world, not good. <laughs> That's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. Yeah. But I'm I'm assuming one of these two Garendebs is the bad guy. I just don't know which one yet. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Holmes ascertains that Nathan Garadeb, the collector, never goes out. He he goes out to some auctions, but he mostly stays at home and catalogs his things. Good for him. He's a, he's a homebody. A friendless homebody. And he's like, I'm not really anxious to acquire an estate in America, which is what uh, would be part of the will. But the other Garadeb, the lawyer, has offered to buy my share, and then I'll have the money to complete some of my collections. There's just a couple things that I'm £100 short or so of buying mm. that I want to be able to purchase. So Holmes asked him some questions about the business without any particular new information, except for that even though the all of his collections are, are valuable to him, they're not especially valuable in general. So it's probably unlikely that someone's trying to steal these things out from under him. Mm. At this point, the American lawyer arrives with a newspaper advertisement advertising a third Garadeb who works as some sort of like agricultural contractor. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, wow, it's it's solved. We found the third Garadab. I have an agent out in Birmingham who was looking and found this advertisement. Take a look at this. And I'm rather busy tomorrow, but can you go out to Birmingham and to, to Nathan? Can you go out to Birmingham and inform him of, the, him of this business? Okay. And get him into our scheme. Doesn't he know he's a homebody? Oh. Why would you send a homebody out to do? <laughs> right. When you're already traveling a lot. Right. So, So what are your suspicions at this point? Maybe they're both doing something. I don't know. They both seem fishy to me. Yeah. So the the reason he gives is, here am I, a wandering American with a wonderful tale. Why should he believe what I tell him? But you are a Britisher with solid references, and he is bound to take notice of what you say. He he refers to British people as Britishers more than once, which I think is very funny. (laughs) You Britisher. You Britisher. I don't know if that's a, a term of the time or just because he's an American. Maybe. Or maybe this is Arthur Conan Doyle just writing an American character thinking like... They probably call them Britishers. Probably. Holmes arranges with Nathan to come back and uh, look at the collection tomorrow while Nathan is out. So he's like, I'm very curious. I'd like to look, take a look at it. Do you mind if the landlady lets me in? Yeah. And I poke around. This is after the lawyer has left also. Yeah. You see where this is going? Perhaps? I do see where this is going. Yeah. And he also asks after the history of the house. Is there a tunnel? What I haven't told you is that the house is actually a bank vault. 
No, there's there's not a tunnel. Damn. But we got pretty close. Okay. So so Holmes asks what Watson's thinking about the whole situation, and he, uh, Watson says, "I can make neither neither head nor tail of it." And Holmes says, "Did you notice something curious about the advertise the advertisement?" And Watson says, "I thought that the word plow was misspelled." Which is great. I like I like when Watson makes deductions. And Holmes points out that the entire advertisement was written the way an American would write it. Ah. Aha. So we have we have A Britisher wouldn't misspell plow. <laughs> exactly. He spelled it P L O W instead of P L O U G H. Yes. The American way. And uh, you know, at this point things are starting to become clear. Someone needs to get out of the house so that the house can be visited by a third party. Right. It's the red-headed league all over again. Holmes is like stupid Americans. <laughs> so Holmes leaves early in the morning and then comes back. And he's like, ooh, this is actually worse than I imagined. How can it be worse? Because he's figured out who the American lawyer is. Oh, okay. So the American lawyer is known as... Killer Evans. How does that make you feel? As an Evan. <laughs> As an Evan. His real name is James Winter, alias Moorcroft, alias Killer Evans. <laughs> and I love that Arthur Conan Doyle is really bad at character names. Like, every every bad guy is either a James or John, <laughs> like Watson. And then Moorcroft is just a combination of Moriarty and Mycroft. <laughs> Hilarious. But he was like a Chicago thug, effectively, hmm. known to have shot people in the States and to have come to the UK and also shot people, including over cards. And the house where Nathan Garadeb, the collector, lives, and in fact, the very same rooms, were formerly occupied by a confederate of his who he also shot, named Prescott. This is sort of all conjecture, actually. Holmes has identified clearly that this guy... The, who's posing as the lawyer is Killer, Killer Evans, but he's just guessing that Prescott is the same guy because the description matches. But because Killer Evans is, shoots people, he takes out a revolver and gives Watson one as well. So they are both armed. Okay. Which, during Murder by Decree, I thought was odd because I'm unused to Holmes carrying a gun, but I guess it does happen. Yeah. When the situation calls for it. So they go to the rooms of Nathan Garadeb, they hide themselves behind a cabinet. There's, like, a cabinet that's, like, out from the wall a little bit, so there's space, which is an odd way to organize a room. And they both hide behind it. And then shortly after that, the American lawyer, Killer Evans, arrives. Mm -hmm. Very purposeful. He moves aside a table. He cuts up a square of rug and then reveals a trap door in the floor. I love a trap door. I love a trap door, through which he descends. And Holmes and Watson are like, this is the moment. And they get up and they, like, like pad over to the trap door, but it's an old floor, so he hears them coming. <laughs> and he like his head pops up, but they're already pointing guns at him. <laughs> and he he starts talking it be like, Ah, I see you've got me, I see you've got me beat. But then he pulls out his gun and fires. Oh no. Oh no. And he hits Watson in the leg. No Damn it, Watson. <laughs> <laughs> but immediately Sherlock Holmes hits him with the back of the pistol. Good. Which is exactly how they got Sebastian in the last story. Right. I love that Arthur Condell is like, the way that good guys use guns is as just as a blunt object. <laughs> <laughs> they just they just use it to hit. They don't shoot. They just hit. But this is the part. This is the part, the affection part. Um, I'm going to read you this whole section because... Does, does he suck the blood out of the wound? Uh, Do here, they kiss passionately? 
They make out, actually. It's Perfect. so weird. They kiss with tongue. I knew it. Here's, here's where it starts. Okay. Holmes rummaged him for weapons, then my friend's wiry arms were around me, and he was leading me to a chair. You're not hurt, Watson? For God's sake, say that you are not hurt. It was worth a wound. It was worth many wounds to know the depth of loyalty and love which lay behind that cold mask. The clear, hard eyes were dimmed for a moment, and the firm lips were shaking. For the one and only time, I caught a glimpse of a great heart as well as of a great brain. All my years of humble but single-minded service culminated in that moment of revelation. It's nothing, Holmes. It's a mere scratch. He had ripped up my trousers with his pocket knife. You are right, he cried with an immense sigh of relief. It is quite superficial. His face set like flint as he glared at our prisoner, who was sitting up with the dazed face. By the Lord, it is as well for you. If you had killed Watson, you would not have got out of this room alive. He, he was threatening Moida. He was threatening Moida. So we had that quoted to us, but without the context before, uh, I think by Sarah. Hmm. There's there's a lot there. Yeah. I like seeing Holmes care for Watson in the same way that we've kind of been seeing in the adaptations. Well, and the way it's phrased, it makes it sound like Watson's been pining after Sherlock and is like, oh my god, he does care. Like, I didn't know that he cared about me as much as I cared about him is sort of the vibe I get off of that. Which is so which is so lovely. It is lovely. Uh, They're in love. It's like, I guess he shows his love a different way. Yeah. And then also, like, that Watson is so dear to him that he's like, I will kill anyone who who kills Watson. Yeah. Like that is my that is the blood pact that I have made. Although I'm not so surprised by that. Yeah, I suppose not. I feel like we've seen in other stories that like he, he has a he has a fondness for Watson, you know. I, I I don't think he would care if like Watson wasn't so intrigued and inquisitive and actually like paying attention to the mysteries. I don't think like he would be asking what Watson thinks. I don't think Watson would like be involved with cases at all if Holmes didn't have some sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and it, well, it's also so nice to see like what I feel is queer text mm-hmm. after so much subtext, like the the words are depth of loyalty and love, you know, that's, um, love, twill, love. So, I'll just wrap up the story real quick. Um, they go down into the trap door area. They don't, like, bind Killer Evans at all. Well, he's been hitting over the head. I yeah, but he, they describe him in the in the next page as just getting up and going and sitting in a chair. <laughs> it's like, he, he could flee, you know? But it's, it's very much the genteel, like, we're going to explain the deductions and you're going to sit here while we do it. But there's a counterfeiting press down mm. there. And Prescott had been a counterfeiter and... Killer Evans had been involved and had shot him over a dispute. He claims that Prescott pulled the gun first Hmm. and that he was acting in self-defense and that he actually deserves a medal for putting him away. But he came back because there were a lot of, like, untraceable, real-looking counterfeit bills. It's a small fortune in counterfeit bills, and nobody knew about the operation. So he, you know, came back for the money. I thought he was going to steal the little curiosities. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I think they really are worthless. Dang. So they, they bring him to Scotland Yard, and Scotland Yard also was like, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have even known about the counterfeiting, except for, and he, he kind of put an end to it, but but they sent him to jail anyway. And uh, the other Garadeb, the only true Garadeb, Nathan Garadeb, is sort of like heartbroken. Uh, mm-hmm. 
It says he never got over the shock of his dissipated dreams. When his castle in the air fell down, it buried him beneath the ruins. He was last heard of at a nursing home in Brixton. Which is sort of sad. Very sad. So that's, and that's, that's the three Yaradibs. So the score from the beginning was, it cost one man his reason, it cost me a bloodletting, and it cost yet another man the penalties of the law. So that's the one man his reason would be Nathan Garadeb, penalties of the law, the false lawyer Garadeb, and then Watson's blood. Yeah. Tis but a scratch. It's only flesh wound. So what do you think? Three Garadebs. That was an interesting story. I, I don't think it concluded in the way that I wanted it to. I, I think I was just kind of hoping that, like, little mysteries were, like, worth something and something like that. Like, the lawyer was going to, like, grinch him and take all his stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think the counterfeiting is kind of like a weird... It feels like a weird cop-out, even though it's not. Mm-hmm. And it feels even weird because nobody else knows about it, too. Right. Which I think is funny. Like, even the Scotland Yard are like, yeah, we didn't even know about this. So thanks for finding this, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I think the thing that makes it a little unfortunate is the treatment of Nathan Garadeb, who, like, instead of just dispatched with a sentence, I think, like, a more modern story would recognize that he's, like, a sympathetic, interesting character and, like, I don't know, he's not doing anyone any harm. Right. He, sh- he should have his happy ending. I agree. The, the case should be solved and the client should be better for it. Yeah. Instead of just the, the justice. Really, the climax of the story is this emotional moment. I also find it interesting that we both had stories that, like, the endings came and we were like, oh, that's weird. Didn't expect that. How did we get here? Yeah. You know, and not to, like, blame Arthur Conan Doyle for it, but it feels like at this point he was just like, yeah, whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens. A counterfeiter, a sniper, whatever. <laughs> but here's the rest of the story, which I really like. And then, oh, I have to write an ending. Uh, uh, and they got him. They hit him yeah. with a gun. They got him. <laughs> when in doubt, hit him with a gun. Don't use it. Hit him. Hit him. Use it like a baseball bat. Like, boom. <laughs> right. Bad guys shoot guns. Good guys. Hit him. Hit him. But so lovely to get this queer moment between... Holmes and Watson. I think because after reading my story and seeing, like, Holmes being like, hey, I'm sorry, I scared you, love, like, sorry, and mm-hmm. Watson was like, you little bitch, like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I think they're both kind of romantic in their own way, you know, and show that they care about one another. Yeah. Although I do agree, like, Watson being like, this was, like, the mask dropping and I finally saw him for him. Mm-hmm. That's very romantic. Yeah. They're gay. They're gay. Point is, they're gay. And we've been new. Yeah. And we're your Baker Street regulars. Wait, I have to say what we're doing next week. (laughs) Next week we'll be talking about two plays. We love plays. We love plays. Uh, Miss Holmes and Miss Holmes Returns. And we'll be interviewing the playwright Christopher Walsh. Are we finally having women? Finally there'll be women. God, there were there were no women in either of our stories except for Miss Hudson behind the curtains on the floor. But that's camp. That is camp. That's crazy. Arthur, get with the times. So we've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>